0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: I'm Caleb Zacharin, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Public Health. Today I'm speaking with Jamie Ducharme, health correspondent for Time Magazine, about her new book, Big Vape, The Incendiary Rise of Juul, published by Henry Holt. A Netflix docu-series based off of the book is currently in production. Jamie, thank you so much for joining me today on the New Books Network
0: thanks so much for having me
1: of course so you know this is a a really controversial subject matter uh obviously jewel has been seemingly in the news in and out for for a few years now but before we get into the book the first question i'd like to ask is if you can just tell me a little bit about your background and why it is you chose to write a book about jewel
0: sure so i have been with time magazine for almost five years And I started covering Juul for Time in 2018 because we were just starting to hear all these reports of teenagers vaping at school and Juul was kind of the brand that kept coming up. So we just did a really straightforward explainer about what Juul is, what vaping is, and we're kind of blown away by the response. So many parents wrote in saying like, oh my God, this is why my kid always smells like mango. Like, thank you for explaining this. We we had no idea what was happening. Um, and so that kind of tipped me off that this was bigger than just one single story. Um, and I followed it for a couple of years, for time. And then in 2020, turned it into a
1: book. So the story of, of Jewel uh, goes back almost more than 15 years. Uh, and there, there are two main characters, uh, James Monseys and Adam Bowen. Uh, who are these people and what? how do they meet? And what was the sort of the, the birth of, of the product that became known as the Jewel?
0: James and Adam were classmates in Stanford's product design um, graduate program. And both of them had been sort of conflicted smokers, I would say. Um, They both had smoked on and off for years. Neither of them felt great about the habit. They knew, of course, that it was bad for them. Um, But they also liked elements of smoking. You know, they liked the ritual. They liked that it was sort of a social activity, all of these things. So in the capacity of their design program, they started to realize that there was a real market for a product that would give smokers something hopefully less dangerous than a cigarette, but maintain some of those elements that they did like, you know, the feeling of bringing it to your mouth, like stepping outside to take a smoke break, all of these things. So James and Adam actually made their thesis project um, about a product they were calling Plume, and over many years and many different iterations that turned into Juul.
1: And, you know, this first iteration, what was this product actually like? you know both the the product that they made for their thesis and then how soon after their thesis did they actually start to you know think about starting a company and make the product and what was that yeah. product like
0: so the the idea that they put forward in their thesis was sort of modeled off of nespresso pods like the idea of just taking a little cup filled with tobacco um, that they could vaporize into something that you could inhale, and that's pretty close to the product that they ended up bringing to market. It took them a few years. They both sort of dabbled in some other work after they left Stanford, um, but eventually did make a go of it, get some investors, actually get a product onto the market. Um, and it looks very much, or the, their first device looked very much like a marker almost, like it was just a little pen-like device that you'd put these tiny pods into, heat them up and inhale. But the problem was they didn't actually work very well. <laughs> they didn't give smokers a ton of nicotine, so they weren't terribly satisfying and they had to kind of keep improving on this design over the years.
1: So before sort of jumping into you know, the long process that would lead to the development of the company, uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a little, a little bit about, you know, some of the the precursors uh, to the Juul, some early earlier e-cigarettes. Uh, what, you know, when was the e-cigarette first invented, uh, and was the per- original purpose of it to get people off of uh, smoking cigarettes?
0: Sure. So James and Adam presented their thesis project in 2005, and at that time, e-cigarettes really didn't exist in the U.S. Um, they they didn't start to be sold here until 2007. So they kind of straddled this interesting time where when they presented their idea, it was totally novel. You know, you really couldn't buy something like what they were describing, at least here in the U.S. And then over the years, the market um, really just blew up. And that started in China, where a pharmacist developed what is now considered the first modern e-cigarette and then slowly over the years, um, different companies in other countries started licensing similar technology and, and bringing it to Europe and North America. Um, early e-cigarettes were not terribly sophisticated. A lot of them were made um, to look very much like a traditional cigarette. The thought being that smokers would, you know, respond better to something that was familiar to them. But you know, the technology wasn't very sophisticated at this time, so they weren't. Um, they weren't terribly effective. Like they didn't necessarily give you enough nicotine. Some of them tasted awful because the, you know, just the process that the nicotine had to go through to be aerosolized in this way made for a really harsh um, user experience. So there was a market for e-cigarettes, but there was also a clear need for something that sort of improved upon the technology and the science that was available. Uh,
1: another thing that you talk about that I found really fascinating is that. James and Adam could sort of be considered experts on the history of, uh, of cigarettes. Uh, there was a document called the Cigarette Papers uh, that they studied uh, and they learned a lot about the history and development and science behind cigarettes. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that research that they did and how that contributed to their development of the product.
0: Sure. So when they were in graduate school in the Bay Area, um, they obviously had access to, to other schools and academic centers in that area. And that came in handy for them because um, at the University of California, San Francisco, there was this huge archive of tobacco industry documents, um, some of which had been made public through what's known as the Tobacco Master Settlement Agreement, which was when attorneys general across the country sued tobacco manufacturers um, and you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages were submitted in discovery for those lawsuits and then eventually made public as part of the settlement. So what this meant for Adam and James is that as they were developing their thesis and and the product that would come after, they could turn to this just massive archive of documents to learn about cigarette chemistry and how tobacco companies made their products addictive they could learn about how cigarettes were marketed, how they were sold, you know, consumer preferences. They basically had a playbook of the entire industry that they were trying to disrupt. Um, and in interviews, they were very public about the fact that they did use this research um, when they were developing Plume and later Juul.
1: So a- after Stanford, they have this prototype. Uh, they, you know, they initially start to, to develop it. Uh, who are the, the first major investors in this product, uh, and, and what were the early, early years like for them?
0: Yeah. So James and Adam learned pretty quickly that it's hard to get investments if you want to go into tobacco. Um, a lot of venture capital firms just straight up don't let their investors touch anything that has to do with tobacco or other vice industries. So they originally had some success reaching out to individual investors, You know, people who weren't bound by these clauses and could just, you know, if they believed in the idea, throw their own money towards it. And they got a few people on board that way that was successful for them for a few years. Um, But as the company was starting to grow and they were running into some technical issues, it became clear that they needed someone who could give them, you know, not only a a significant financial investment, but also some support on the design and engineering side of things. And that, somewhat surprisingly, came from Japan Tobacco International, which was a huge tobacco corporation. Um, And, you know, that today, I think, raises some eyebrows because it seems like, hang on, if you're developing something that's supposed to be better than cigarettes, why are you taking money from a cigarette company? Um, but they knew the industry. They kind of saw the need for a product that would eventually replace combustible cigarettes, and they had a lot of money to throw at it. So for Adam and James, it made sense.
1: Yeah, there's something you know, sort of ironic or, or funny about this idea of the jewel coming from San Francisco or the Bay Area. Just because you know I'm from California, and I also know about the Bay Area in general, it's like one of those places where you know people will really side-eye you uh, for for smoking. Uh, so you know there is a sense I think where they they were trying to build this this sleek product there uh, to to avoid those looks. And it's interesting that it ended up, that this investment did end up coming from um, from a Japanese tobacco uh, corporation. Uh, you know I, I'm wondering you know at this period of time. You know, what was the the state of e-cigarette legislation, uh, both in the United States and and also in in Japan?
0: This is something I think a lot of people don't know about e-cigarettes, which is that until very recently, there was not a single vaping product for sale in the U.S. that the FDA had authorized. They were operating in this sort of regulatory gray area where the FDA had some power to regulate tobacco companies, but took a really long time to finalize that process for e-cigarettes. So when companies like Juul and its its precursors launched, they didn't have to do anything as far as the FDA was concerned. They didn't need to file an application. There weren't you know studies that they needed to complete to make sure their products were safe. Um, of course, the FDA could step in if, if a really serious issue arose, but in terms of like forward-looking legis- uh, regulation, there was very little they had to do. Um, so the regulations around this industry far were far slower than the companies that started to get popular over time.
1: So when they first launched their product, they, they called it the, the Model 1 product. I don't know if that was the actual name of the product or just what they called it in-house.
0: No, I think uh, that was actually the name.
1: That was the name. Great. Yeah, <laughs> it's the same as the Tesla. Uh, <laughs> exactly. But- um, uh, but I, am wondering, you know, when they first launched this, this product, you know, what's the, the initial reception, like, what is this, what exactly is this product and, and what is their, you know, th- their prospects for, you know, developing a successful company?
0: People who worked at Plume in the early days told me that there was actually a lot of anticipation for the Model 1 because of some of the reasons I mentioned that a lot of the early cigarettes available, you know, didn't work that well. They were kind of clunky. People didn't like them that much. So there was a lot of hope um, that a company, you know, a young company out of the Bay Area could come up with something better. But once Model 1 came out, it was Clear pretty quickly that it wasn't going to succeed. I think they only sold a few thousand units, um, in large part because it just didn't give smokers enough nicotine. It, it wasn't satisfying. Um, one employee told me that he used to tape two of them together so that he could hit them both at the same time, which is a pretty clear indication that you're just not, you know, producing enough nicotine.
1: So the, you know, this product, arguably, I don't know, if failure is the right word. It wasn't wasn't super successful. I think
0: um, There, yeah,
1: but. <laughs> But, you know, then they have their second product come out, which is the PAX. So what is this product uh, and and what set this product apart from the Model 1?
0: PAX was different in a few ways. Um, One, it looked very different. It is very reminiscent of sort of the Apple product, you know, sleek, metallic, not a lot of, um, you know, excess design elements, just very streamlined. So that was one thing that set it apart. It just immediately looked more like a luxury product, the Model 1. But the bigger difference, arguably, is that it was meant to vaporize loose leaf tobacco. And very quickly, people started to realize, hey, if this works with loose leaf tobacco, it'll probably work with marijuana as well. So it did not take off among tobacco users, but it started to get really popular among marijuana users, which was not really what the company had intended, but it was a bit of a happy accident because it, it did start to take off in San Francisco.
1: And, you know, with, with the launch of the PAX, you described this, you know, this very, uh, you know, expansive marketing campaign. Uh, can you talk about the the person responsible for this marketing campaign and, and, you know, who they were targeting, how they were going about it, and, and really how they used social media and influencers? You know, this is I I don't know if potentially, but maybe one of the first instances of using influencers to promote a product in the digital age.
0: Yeah. So I will say the the campaign for PAX was a little bit lower tech or lower budget than what would come later for Joule, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But it was definitely, as you said, a, an early example of a company that realized social media was going to be huge for them and sort of getting the PAX into the right hands was going to be huge for them so that it would spread by a word of mouth and just buzz, basically just becoming popular. So as I said, social media was huge. They posted about it on Instagram all the time. They would partner with like music festivals and events where there would be a lot of millennials there and just basically seeded the device into cool, cool populations like high fashion um, musicians, DJs. Like they had a very clear image of who their target customer was. And once they started reaching that crowd, it did take off pretty quickly.
1: And at this point, were they still, you know, marketing this as a tobacco product, or were they just embracing the fact that they had developed a product that people were using primarily for for marijuana?
0: I think there was a short push to market it for tobacco, and then it just became so clear that people weren't using it for that, that eventually they did switch gears and just accept that.
1: So, you know, in 2014, they, they finally produce the jewel so they had been I, from the prototype it's it's now been 9 years before they designed the you know the initial product that people are familiar with today uh, you know what what was different about the jewel from the model 1 and the model 2 um, and and you know really why did why did the jewel uh, take off why was the jewel not a failure like the previous attempts
0: yeah i think there's a few reasons that it took off in ways that the earlier devices didn't um one it shared it was much closer to the packs in terms of design than model one and model two it again had that very sleek metallic look no buttons no switches you just had to inhale um, for it to work so that was a huge step up over really everything almost everything on the market at the time because a lot of vapes in this era were like big clunky things that produce huge clouds of vapor. And then you have the jewel, which is like a tiny, discreet, little flash drive looking thing that you can hold in the palm of your hand. So that was really appealing for people. Um, But it also used science that just had not been widespread in e-cigarette products prior to 2014, 2015, It's known as nicotine salts. And without getting too in the weeds, it's basically a, a way to make a much more potent nicotine liquid without it tasting disgusting or being too harsh for someone to use. So I think Juul was one of the first products to launch that smokers used, and you know were in some cases actually overwhelmed by how much nicotine it delivered. Like they were surprised by how strong it was, but that also meant that people kept using it because it was satisfying.
1: So during the development of this product, you know when they were comparing it to the past models, was you know I, it seems that they had sort of established to a certain extent that they wanted that this minimalist design. Uh, and they wanted it to be a, you know, a, a sexy product for lack of a better word, but really the overarching question for them seemed to be like, how can we deliver as much nicotine as possible? Was that, was that what was driving them primarily? Were they thinking about it as a, as a smoke replacement or they said, we just need something that can give people the best hit possible?
0: Yeah, I think James was very focused on the design and Adam was very focused on the science and they both had sort of priorities that were guiding them. For James, it was the fact that he knew people were people needed something they wouldn't be embarrassed to use in public, basically. Like he knew that he had to make it small and discreet enough that you could just put it in your purse or put it in your pocket and like sneak out for a five-minute break at work and it, it wouldn't be a whole ordeal. So that was big for James. For Adam, his whole priority was matching the nicotine kick of a cigarette. Um, and I think there's there is a legitimate argument to be made for making a, a pretty potent nicotine product, because if a smoker isn't getting the buzz that they want or that they need, they're probably going to go back to cigarettes. Um, so if you're designing something with public health in mind, that's obviously, you know, that's a failure if, if they're going back to smoking. But it's also sort of a slippery slope, because if you're designing something that's incredibly easy to use, incredibly subtle, incredibly discreet, and very strong, it's basically a recipe for a highly, highly addictive product.
1: So, you know, they have this new product, the Jewel, And, you know, when when does it finally start to take off in popularity? What happens? What was that period of time like?
0: Jewel launched in the summer of 2015, Um, and I think there's this narrative that it was like an overnight success, but that actually wasn't the case. For the first year or so that it was on the market, it didn't sell all that well. The company was actually kind of panicked because their hopes and dreams were basically riding on the jewel, and it it was kind of disappointing sales. And then I think over time, word of mouth helped them become popular. Um, They did start to spread quite a bit on social media. They were able to convince more stores to start selling the product. And it just kind of snowballed such that by maybe early 2017, it was very much starting to take off.
1: And at this point, you know, I I, I think a big reason that Juul really started to make headlines beyond the fact that, you know, it was being used as a cigarette replacement therapy for smokers. Um, you know that it starts to be used by teenagers and starts to appear in high schools and middle schools um, you know when, when did this really start to occur and what were what were the people at uh, I, I can't it's hard to keep track of what the company's called at this no. point is it is it called are, are they called Juul at this point or Pax or they were
0: not it's so confusing they didn't become Juul until 2017 they were called Pax up until then
1: so you know, so James Adam and the rest of the the, the PAX team, what was you know, the, obviously I'm sure they had to have been aware that that jewel was being used by by not their intended you know their target customer target. So so you know, what what was this period of time like? And you know, obviously I think I think it makes sense, or there's obvious reasons why student why young people took to it. You know, it was something that they could discreetly use without their parents catching mm-hmm. on to them. So. Uh, you know what was this period of time like?
0: I think the teen the teen thing started to become a problem as soon as Jewel launched. Honestly, um, their launch campaign, which you were alluding to earlier, was like very lifestyle oriented. It's young, cool looking models on like neon backgrounds dancing around and holding a jewel. And it's not disclosed very clearly at all what the product is, that there's nicotine in it, that it's addictive. It just looks like a cool new tech product. So very, very quickly after this launch campaign came out, people in tobacco control started to get worried, started to say publicly, you know, it looks an awful lot like they're advertising to teenagers. They seem to be doing exactly what Big Tobacco did for decades. You know, we need to keep an eye on this. And you know, that prophecy ended up coming true because as Juul did start to spread on social media, um, teenagers were kind of drawn to it. As you said, it was very easy to use without your parents knowing. People would use it like in the back of classrooms and their teachers wouldn't know. Um, And I would say by maybe 2017, 2018, it was like a cultural phenomenon. There were Instagram accounts that were dedicated to Juul. There were like YouTube videos of different Juul related challenges that teenagers would do. It was it was everywhere, um, at least in certain schools. And I think the company knew, of course, it knew that this was a big problem, but at the same time, you know, the cat was sort of out of the bag. Like it was already popular on social media. Teenagers had already figured out a way to get it, um, and it was really hard to unring that bell.
1: And the, the, you know, the company itself in 2017 and 2018, you know, obviously they, their revenue starts kicking up dramatically. Uh, and they also go through certain, you know, corporate changes and restructurings and and they also eventually get purchased, uh, get or a significant portion of the company gets purchased. Uh, what what happened in this period of time to the company itself?
0: Yeah, I think Juul's rise is really interesting because as it starts to be raking in money, really popular, it's also becoming a highly controversial and highly criticized company because so many teenagers were vaping. So financially, you know, Juul was just rising and doing great; its valuation soaring. But in the media all the time, there's like negative articles about the company, people in public health hate Juul. And all of this comes to a fever pitch when Altria, the company that owns Philip Morris, which makes Marlboro cigarettes, um, purchased 35 percent of Juul at the end of 2018. So I think to people who were already skeptical of Juul, that was just an indication that you know it had never really been about public health. It was always just trying to make money, and you know didn't really care if it partnered with the tobacco industry to do it.
1: And for them, was this you know was this primarily just a you know an, an exit? You know, there's obviously a lot of money to be made from from this type of sale, um, you know, or or was there a idea that oh this will help us streamline you know this way if we're working with big tobacco? Then big tobacco won't be afraid of, you know, of jewel, you know, jewel or e cigarettes being used as replacement. Therefore, this will be better for smokers in the long run. Are are they, you know, making these justifications during this time or is it really just like we're going to, you know, we're going to sell to the highest bidder?
0: It depends who you ask. Um, Some people who worked at the company told me for the book that, you know, it was just to make the executives money, basically, that the founders and the CEO knew that if they sold, for $13 billion almost, they were going to get really, really rich. Um, But I have spoken to the founders about this, um, and Adam explained it to me as saying that they knew that Altria had certain resources that Juul didn't. For example, they already had existing relationships with smokers. So the thought was, if you can advertise directly to people who are currently smoking, you can get more smokers to switch and use e-cigarettes instead, which is hopefully less dangerous. Um, they also had things like dedicated shelf space in retail stores that Jewel was able to use. Again, getting its product hopefully in front of more smokers. So there are sort of like justifications for for the investment, but the truth of the matter is that it did also make the executives very very rich. I think something like two or three hundred million dollars went into the company, and the rest just paid out individuals. So it was a huge money-making opportunity for sure.
1: So, you know, the thing that I that I read in the book that was perhaps some of the shocking and something that I wasn't aware of is that in 2018 and 2019, uh, Jewel began a series of educational and political campaigns in order to improve their image. Can you talk about these campaigns and, and, you know, some of their, obviously there was a variety of things they did, but just, you know, some of the examples of things that they did to try and, Promote their their image as as a uh, you know friendly corporation.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think the the education campaigns to me are the most shocking thing. Um, and to I guess back up and give context about that, these started I believe in early either late two thousand seventeen or early two thousand eighteen. Um, and it was sort of in response to the fact that so many teenagers were using Juul. the company had acknowledged this was a problem and they were thinking of ways that they could help fix the problem and what they came up with was to hire education consultants who would make a curriculum um, an anti-vaping curriculum basically something to teach middle and high school students about the dangers of nicotine and why they shouldn't be vaping and all these things and then they would send company representatives into schools pay the schools um, for the opportunity you know to teach to their students and you know teach this curriculum which is a little dubious on its face but even more so if you look into the history of what the tobacco industry had done because there's a long history of cigarette companies doing essentially the same thing And many studies have come out saying that these programs are not effective. In some cases are counterproductive because it makes young people like positively associate, have positive associations with tobacco. So many people in public health told Jewel not to do this, that this was a mistake. It was going to look bad. It was going to backfire and they just did it anyway, which is sort of a repeating theme in the book is Jewel getting advice and ignoring it. So that was one part of it. And then on the political side of things, um, I think there was an acknowledgement that they were going to get attacked by attorneys general, by lawmakers, by regulators, and they were trying to get ahead of the narrative. Basically, so they spent millions of dollars on lobbying. Um, they were really aggressive with lobbying the White House, um, just trying to engender some support on Capitol Hill, which did not go super well for them.
1: You have a description in the book where basically, you know, at a certain point, Jewel started to like tobacco. Come, I think you say that you know, people say that tobacco companies are, you know, law firms that happen to sell tobacco. Yes. Um, and that Juul was looking at turning into a law firm that happened to sell e-cigarettes, um, you know, sort of w- with that image in mind, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, what is the sort of the current state of FDA regulation, the current state of regulation for Juul? Uh, what, what are those prospects looking like for the company? Um,
0: yeah, very much an unfolding story as we speak. Um, but to make a long story short, e cigarette companies finally had to file applications to get FDA authorization in 2020. And in those applications, they were supposed to prove that, on balance, their products are good for public health, that they are good enough for smokers, you know, help them quit cigarettes well enough to outweigh things like teenagers using the product or any health risks that are introduced. So the FDA was supposed to decide the fate of all of these different e-cigarette companies by the fall of 2021. They didn't exactly do that. There were some delays in the process, but um, just a few months ago, or I'm losing track of time, but recently they said that Juul had not met that standard and that it would have to take all of its products off the market, which you know was a big deal because Juul is and was um, the biggest e-cigarette company in the country. So to take all of its products off the market was a pretty stark thing. Very quickly, Juul appealed the decision, filed some legal complaints. They got a temporary pause on the order to take their products off the market. And as of early August, when we're talking, the FDA is re-reviewing Juul's application. So to be determined if it will be able to keep selling in the U.S. or not.
1: And, you know, I think the sort of, in many ways, uh, the, the million dollar question with this all and something that I've wondered, because I can't really, I've never been able to to fully find the answer on this, but like how harmful is vaping actually, you know, compared to cigarettes and, you know, just in general, like obviously nicotine is addictive, but, you know, I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure nicotine by itself isn't necessarily harmful. Um, right. But, you know, I, I know that it's not just, just nicotine in the product. So, so right. is it is it really as bad as some people say it is, or, or is overall this you know not something that people should be terribly worried about?
0: I mean, that is the million dollar question. If there is a heated debate, I would say in the research world about this question, um, there are some researchers who say that vaping is almost as bad as smoking. Um, there are some who say it's potentially you know life saving at scale. Um, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. I mean. What I always say is that if you don't currently smoke, it's of course better to not start vaping. Like it's better to not inhale chemicals into your lungs, of course. But if you do smoke, I'm pretty convinced based on the research that is out there that vaping is at least less dangerous, if not safe. And I think that is the opinion that most researchers in the space hold. You know, there's, as I said, a range of opinions, but I do think there's pretty wide agreement that smoking is worse for you than vaping. Vaping is worse for you than not using any tobacco product.
1: So, you know, I, this isn't something in your book, but I know I mentioned at the very beginning that this is being turned into a a docu-series. I was wondering, you know, obviously you might have some sort of NDA that you can't talk about Mm -hmm. it, but I was wondering if you could just tell our listeners a little, little bit about that. Um, and you know what what that presentation is going to be like, uh, and you know what your involvement has been.
0: Yeah, there's a, unfortunately not a ton that I can say. Um, what is public is that it is being directed by filmmaker RJ Cutler, um, which is really exciting. He's a very talented director. Um, and yeah, it's basically just a visual presentation of the book. Um, it's nice because I I finished my book at the very end of 2020. So all of these kind of twists and turns with the FDA were unfortunately not part of it um, and luckily we're in production now with the docu series so hopefully we'll be able to bring the story a little bit closer to present day. Um, it's it's fascinating to see sort of the visual side of it because I'm so so much in the words side of things. So I'm excited for the world to get to to
1: see it and you know it sounds sounds like you're you know you're busy with that and i know you're also uh, work as a correspondent but i was wondering if there are anything new that you're that you're working on if you're continuing with the subject or if there there's anything else that you have taken a interest to
0: i continue to cover vaping um for time magazine there's been as as we talked about much in the news lately so i've been writing about that Um, but really, for the last couple of years, I've been very focused on COVID and the pandemic. Um, so that's mostly what I've been covering for time. And yeah, no no book projects to speak of at the moment, but maybe something else in the future.
1: Well, Jamie, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. It was great talking with you. I'm sure our listeners, many, uh, especially our parent listeners, will find this very interesting. So thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.